do people in Austin really love soccer? I think back to May 17, 2014. My beloved Arsenal was playing the FA Cup final against Hull City for its best chance for a trophy in nearly 10 years. I packed into the tavern on 12th and Lamar with close to 300 other Arsenal fans. Hull went up 1-0 after 4 minutes and then 2-0 after 8 minutes, which was obviously bad, but Arsenal clawed back to tie the game and then an extra time finally took the lead on a goal that made the entire tavern crowd burst into joyous, raucous, alarmingly loud energy. We screamed, we jumped up and down, we high-fived badly, and my friend Bobby, in his exuberance, showered the people next to him with an entire bottle of Lone Star. When the wave of cheers subsided, he turned to them and said, apologetically, we're in the splash zone. And then, to better clarify, he said, I'm Shamu. The game was happening six time zones away in London, but this was, to me, a decidedly and perfectly Austin moment. I'm Phil West, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. Tara Ariano helped pioneer the TV recap format as one of the creators of the website Television Without Pity. Now she lives in Austin and she's still changing the game on TV criticism with her partners at Previously.TV. She came in to talk about this weekend's ATX Television Fest, where she'll be appearing on two panels. Speaking of ATX TV Fest, the whole cast of Felicity will be reunited here in Austin to talk about their iconic show 20 years later. Statesman Features Editor and longtime Felicity fan Sharon Chapman joins us to talk about Felicity's cultural impact in a broader look at coming-of-age TV shows. Even if you're not a soccer, excuse us, football obsessive, you probably know that the World Cup is coming. It kicks off next week in Russia, but where do you watch here? The United States of Soccer author Phil West tells us the best spots to find rowdy camaraderie. Remember when you used to get decked out for the movies, go to a grand theater, and enjoy the picture and balcony seating? No? Statesman culture writer Joe Gross is here to tell you why it's time to change that with the Paramount Summer Movie Series. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast. But first, we're talking to Tara Ariano, who also co-hosts Previously.TV's flagship podcast about television, Extra Hot Great. Thank you for joining us on I Love You So Much. Thank you. So you have, I have worked for you for like close to 20 years. Oh God, that's true. <laughs> recaps and that's stuff. True. <laughs> so full disclosure, I have written for Television Without Pity and Previously.TV for many years and that's how I And before talk. that, I mean, you were pre-Television pre, uh, pre Without Pity. You wrote Mighty for Big Mighty TV. Big TV, which yeah. is, was its original name, yeah. Well, we are so glad to have you here and we're glad to have you as a new resident of Austin, Texas. Thank Welcome, you. Tara. Thank well, you so much. Welcome to the Quesole. <laughs> <laughs> so we should say uh, Television Without Pity started as a recap website for Dawson's Creek way back in the day. Correct. Originally, it was just da- called Dawson's Rap. Yeah. And wh- what did you do differently when you started Previously.TV, the current site that, that you wanted, like when you were going back to like, let's create a new site, what mm-hmm. did you want to do differently from, from what you'd done before? Well, I mean, originally we wanted to, uh, we wanted to stay away from sort of straight up recaps. Um, we just thought it would be more fun to do kind of bloggy or posts but you can't you can't you can't resist it i mean we tried to find different ways into it and different kind of editorial formats and different a different focus that you could come into it on a tv episode that wasn't necessarily just you know xyz happened 
but that is what people want. <laughs> so we did. We, I mean, we we uh, we had particles, which you wrote for on the Walking Dead, which was like sort of a. I mean, how would you describe it? It was. It's like a recap in in multiple modular. Yeah, like chunks. modular segments. Yeah. yeah, but I I feel like I remember when when you all told me about the site. Uh, this must have been like five years ago, yeah. at least. And you were telling me that you felt like TV recaps had become a little bit too academic, that they'd gotten very serious, and that you kind of wanted to go back to having fun with yeah. TV criticism again. Yeah, I mean, we're still in the age of the think piece. Like, I don't think we solved that problem, <laughs> especially <laughs> recording this, you know, less than a week after the finale of The Americans. Like, it's, the, it's, the think piece is still very much with us. Can I be devil's advocate, go, a devil's advocate, though? Like, what is wrong with a think piece? Like, why resist that format? I, I mean, nothing is wrong with that. Obviously, people must be reading them or no one would be doing them. It just was. It just felt for us that we wanted to be more. We wanted it to be more light and jokey and and fun. Um, but you know, it's it's hard to get away from what's what's <laughs> what kind of established you, and which is why last fall we had a, a go no Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. We had an Indiegogo. <laughs> I almost said GoFundMe. That's not right. We did an Indiegogo campaign to um, fund epic old school recaps because we thought this might be something people want, and they did. It was funded in less than a month, and so you you did epic old school recaps for The Walking Dead for us as Wait, well. Would you say are like these, you know, anywhere from six to ten thousand word, you know, full on wordy recaps? Yeah. But in a way, there. I mean, I've done them too. I did them for the final season of The Americans, and I'll be doing them for for Claws, which is coming back on June 10th. But it's in a way, it's kind of easier because you don't have to be like you're just covering everything. You don't have to try and think like, what do I need to leave out? It's just it's all of it, and and that it can kind of be fun in its own way too. I mean, what are some things that had changed about the TV criticism landscape from the time of Television Without Pity to previously TV? Oh, I mean everyone was doing recaps that's the biggest thing like even media outlets that never really covered tv that much at all i mean at one point i there i followed three different people that were all doing american horror story (laughs) recaps and so i would see their tweets like all in a row and it would be for like for rolling stone for vox for whatever it means you know it's a much more crowded landscape for sure and they'd all post the minute the episode ended yeah because you get screeners (laughs) yeah yes which we never did in television without pity days (laughs) Well, so whenever TWAP officially shuttered a few years ago, Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of think pieces about that. Right. And something that I always felt that was when uh, Television Without Pity first started, yes, it was loose. And also television itself was more loose. I mean, Mm -hmm. now we have an embarrassment of riches. And so as television itself has gotten more sophisticated... So has the criticism that's followed. For sure, yeah. So it seems like that's one of the reasons it's hard to get away from those mm-hmm. meaty think pieces. Yeah. Because, like, they're echoing what we're being presented. Right. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, even in, on Television Without Pity, like, it took a while for us to kind of come around and say, oh, I guess we should cover these serious shows, too. Because it <laughs> yeah. sort of had started out as, I mean, I hate the phrase guilty pleasure, but they definitely were more, like, targeted shows that we were covering like at the time the WB was huge we covered every show that they did pretty much Um, and then we also did the West Wing because we thought famously (laughs) at the time oh a political show with Rob Lowe it's going to be terrible this is going to be hilarious to rank on (laughs) jokes on us it was actually very serious and and beloved but you know yeah but but we learned over the over the time of doing it like people 
they want that they wanted that take on trashy shows and not trashy shows both okay now let me ask you both a question coming from a non-tv recapper what are the most fun recaps to write because (laughs) i love reading vulture's real housewives recaps even when i haven't watched real housewives and they're just so just the amount of like dishy like sharp wit in those is so wonderful and uh but I don't know. Like, it seems like it's a completely different skill set than what you need to have for a Mo Ryan writing Mad Men recaps. Right. So what about for you? What's your favorite TV genre to recap? Hmm. I mean, you can't say a bad show because if you hate it, it's not fun to write about. Sure. Right. You can hate aspect. You can you can be annoyed by things about it. But if it's something where you just have contempt for the show or you don't get any pleasure out of even just watching it. Those are shows that someone else should cover, not you. Would you agree? It gets old fast and you get burned out and the readers can tell when you're not enjoying yourself. Yeah, yeah. but something like Smallville, I feel mm-hmm. like, which Omar covered for us for the entire series run, I, I think. think. I, all but the last two seasons. I did, did eight seasons. I My think, God. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. My <laughs> life, Tara. <laughs> and how many words were those? Tell the listeners. About seven or 8,000 words. I mean, thousands. Piece. Like, they were 12, 12 pages in Word. Plus probably. polls and yeah. headlines and all that. But the thing about that show was that it was it was a show that thought it was better than it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was very earnestly trying to be better than it was, but really it was kind of cheesy. And that, so it was just right in that perfect pocket of like, not quite a guilty pleasure, not quite prestige TV, uh, easy to make fun of, basically. Mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's That was my bread and butter for years and years. Yeah. Like shows that take itself, themselves too seriously. That That's always good to make fun of, to, gotcha. to puncture the air out. And, and it had the whole superhero... DC Comics thing before the superhero thing had really taken off. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, let's shift and talk about the ATX TV Festival because I've, I've actually attended stuff with you in mm-hmm. past years. We, I think we sat next to each other at the Ugly Betty reunion, which was fa- fabulous. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what are some things you're looking forward to this year? Because you're, you're on a panel uh, with some critics from Entertainment Weekly, Variety, The Hollywood Reporter doing a debate. Yeah, it seems like it's supposed to be a real like a classic high school debate (laughs) so I don't we still don't I I don't think we have the topics yet so this might be a real disaster (laughs) Uh, awesome and and you're also on a a panel about TV music uh, with like TV legend WG Snuffy Walden who did the music for Friday Night Lights Lights guy yeah Yeah. and you're moderating that yeah I'm moderating that one yes Um, it'll be him uh, the composer for Vita the new show on stars Mm -hmm. uh, which is just about to wrap up its first season and um the two creators of the Americans and their composer as well will be on it. So, oh wow! Yeah, wow, so I'm, I'm looking forward to asking them what 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 come, goes into, you know, obviously you have to consider every single aspect of a series finale, but how does music play into that? What is what what are what were the conversations you had? What did you want to accomplish? Can I dig a little deeper into that, Tara? As a critical voice of the Americans, and it just ended, and mm-hmm. it's a big like time for that show. Yeah, like what are you? Uh, like what questions are you planning to ask them like I have always appreciated the way the Americans captured period in Mm -hmm. their show by not making it jokey right but there are enough nods of the time to like make you think like oh yeah we can't just text somebody when we need some information we (laughs) have to go hand deliver this critical information to the FBI yes (laughs) you have to pull over and when you see a payphone. yeah yeah exactly (laughs) and exactly and there are 
um, bad guys doing bad things. There's also like sexy spy stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a challenging show to score is what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm curious to know how they decided what moments should be scored and what should be using, you know, period pop songs because they they did a great job with that. Too. Yeah, I mean, a lot of choices that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Um I mean, I watched. I went to see Book Club last week in the last song. And <gasps> oh it my is, god, uh, I am dying to see Book Club. <laughs> I am literally dying to see it. <laughs> well, spoiler: uh, this the song that it closes with is more than this. And and I remember as soon as it started oh, playing, it, it took me right back to that episode of The Americans last season that 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 ended with that too. So yeah, I'm I'm curious to um, ask them about the interplay of like music supervision versus score. How right. do you make those decisions? What does a scene? How do you determine what a scene needs? Well, yeah. well, those are two highlights from the festival that you should check out if you're going. Um, but there's also some reunions. They, that's one thing uh, ATX TV Fest does really well is, get, is rounding up writers and, mm-hmm. and showrunners and actors from shows. This year they're doing Nash Bridges, 30-something, Fel- Felicity I think is probably the big one. And then there's a Futurama cast reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've done, obviously in the past, Ugly Betty, Gilmore Girls. Some of these to me feel like like almost like pitches for like let's bring this show back yeah right? I mean that's what ended happen- happening with Gilmore Girls that it came back the next year I think yeah what, what's your take I mean you're covering a lot of this stuff I mean are, do you feel kind of oversaturated with all the reboots and rehashes of, of older TV shows uh, yes I would rather <laughs> I would rather uh, original stories I mean when a show comes back it's never it's never the same and, and it's never as good as your memories I think and and it seems like a lot of times when creators want to do it, it's because they had, I mean, especially in Gilmore Girls' case, because Amy Sherman-Palladino, who created the show, you know, was did not finish it. <laughs> I don't I want to say she got fired. She quit. Whatever happened. She didn't do the, the final season. So you come back with, like, a big agenda. And maybe that's not what the story needs, you know, and especially the more time has passed, the more it's like, how, how much does a, should a show just remain an artifact that you can love on its own merits versus... Oh no, we had all these unfinished threads that we didn't that we want need to, to deal resolve. with. Like, yeah, I mean, I, my feeling is always like, I, I'm happy with fewer answers, and I'm happy with fewer episodes of a show in general. <laughs> like, right. I mean, with the Americans that we were just talking about, like, if it had ended after the the, the big scene in the garage, that would have been fine with me. Like, that could that would have been a great ending as far as I was concerned. But, uh, but you know, people watch them. I mean, they wouldn't do them if they weren't gonna if they didn't think that there was an audience. Yeah. It seems like the ones that have been successful or at least among critics are the ones where they just sort of, they don't try to bring the original cast back. They don't try to recreate it. They just, if they're going to reboot it, they do it like one day at a time. For right. Instance. Oh yeah. There's definitely for sure a difference for me between a remake versus a revival. Let's or, say. Or like Mystery Science Theater where it was like a whole new Exactly. Cast. Like, yeah. I don't know, but like we're having this conversation in the wake of Roseanne just being canceled. Well, yeah. <laughs> Same and then that. cast, hugely successful. Unfortunately, like some things happened. Well, yeah. commercially, commercially successful, but critics were not very fond of it. It didn't do very well critically, it doesn't seem like. Well, I think critics were conflicted about it. I mean, it seems like there was a lot in the background going on a Roseanne that affected people's lens, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'm interested in this idea of, like, people really not wanting reboots because sometimes people do. Now, that being said, like, there are some reboots, like Fuller House. How did that ever happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who signed off? Who was asking for it? How did most of the cast come back? Do- yeah. Don't, don't know. I agree with you that a remake can be great with one one day at a time is an excellent example because it takes like the bones of a good idea for a show and then it, it, it sort of builds a new story onto it that has a completely different perspective than the original. And Dynasty is another one that's, you know, on the trashy versus 
uh, classy tip. I, I mean, I love the new dynasty. I think it's it's super fun, but it's 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 just like barely using the original series and it's all new cast and, you know, replaying the the same character names, but they have totally different stories. And I, I mean, I, I think that's that's much more interesting to me than just here's all the people you knew from Murphy Brown and now they're 25 years older. Like, again, to your question, who wanted that? I don't know. And some of it, not to be ages, but some of it is the energy. Like, like mm-hmm. the thing I like, I mean, about One Day at a Time and, and Mystery Science Theater as reboots is that that new energy of having new people come yeah. in who have who are bringing a freshness to it that you're not going to get bringing a cast together 25 years after they you know were at their prime. Or yeah, whatever. which you also have to feel bad about when something like Roseanne happens where it's like Lisey Gorenson, what is she doing now? <laughs> like Sarah Gilbert and John Goodman when Laurie Metcalf are all going to be fine. Right. These people are like, "Oh my god, I got another big break." Just kidding, you yeah. know. Like you, it's thanks, Roseanne. <laughs> when you know cool. the backstory, you feel worse for those people who are like so excited about their second big break. You know. Can I take it back to the fest real fast and mm-hmm. ask about the vibe of ATX TV Fest? Because um, for people who've never gone before, maybe they have the impression that it's more industry or you know more people who are interested on a critical level. What is is that the fact is or is this a fan fest just as much? Um, I think it's for very serious TV fans. They call it TV camp, and that's how it seems to me. It's like going to sleepaway camp. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> instead of, you know, making lanyards, you're going to panels and seeing, like, your favorite cast members. And and uh, the fact that it's a lot of creators, I think, is uh, it's, it speaks to the caliber of fan, where it's not just, like, Comic-Con, where you're, you know, hoping to see people in costume or whatever. Like, it's for people that are serious about about the shows that they love. Who know the showrunners as well as they yeah. know the yeah. names and, of the show. And yeah. consider them as big celebrities as, you know, as people that are on camera, which is cool to me. I'm curious, what's your relationship with like with other TV critics? Because it feels like to me from having watched, you know, with, through previously and, and on Twitter, there's just been this kind of new generation of TV critics, some of whom originated on the web, some who were from traditional media. But like I'm thinking like Mo Ryan, Alan Sevenwall, who we talk about a lot on the show, mm-hmm. uh, who just got hired by Rolling Stone. Yeah, uh, Alan wow. Sevenwall. Uh, John Posniak, who got uh, hired by the New York Times. It feels like there's this sort of new breed of TV critics, and a lot of them have been on your show, on your podcast, on Extra Hot Grade, and you know a lot of them. What Do you all talk all day and kind of <laughs> compare notes? I, mean. um, I do text Alan sometimes, or he texts me. Yeah, Mo was just on our podcast last week on Extra Hot Grade. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's fun to be able to interact with people. I, I feel like it mostly plays out on Twitter because a lot of it is not, you know, it's not private. It's just like TV critics geeking out about TV just the same as anyone else, you know. Um, the, the great thing about peak TV is that there's so many more shows that you can be excited about. So it's a lot more of that than just, you know, bitching about shows that people we don't like. Oops, I like to say that. <laughs> than totally complaining like. about shows you don't right like. Right on the border of <laughs> acceptable. <laughs> on the bleeding edge of <laughs> statesman acceptability. Well, well, Tara, we'll close with this. Um, you just moved, you and David T. Cole, co-founder and uh, of previously, uh, just moved from Hawaii to Austin. Yes. And I'm curious, like, what have, what have your thoughts been so far moving here? You visited a few times before. Yeah. Um, when we moved to Hawaii, we almost moved to Austin that time. That was that was also on our list. <laughs> so um, we perhaps made the wrong decision when we didn't move here back in 2014. But yeah, so far so good. I mean, it's been a lo- we haven't had a lot of chances to explore the city because we've just been like doing moving in stuff. Um, 
but we know more of our neighbors already than we ever did when we lived in Hawaii. Like everyone is super friendly. And that was something that I, I in particular was very excited for moving here. Um, we found where we lived in Hawaii was like a town of 10,000 people. We were very isolated. Like we really had a hard time just meeting anyone. And in Austin, I feel like we've made like 10 new friends since we moved here. So, um, Yes, it's been that 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 aspect of it has been tremendous. The weather, not so much, but I'm sure oh I will get gosh. used to it. It's I mean, this is this is an unusual time. I mean, not off the charts unusual, but right. still hot for even for locals. We think it's going to be a hot summer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what I hear. I mean, I moved here on April 15th and it was like like the perfect weather <laughs> and then that lasted for about 2 weeks. I was like, "Oh, right, it's like this also." Does it, <laughs> does it help at all with with TV scheduling because I know in Hawaii you kind of had that buffer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we had direct TV so we got our um depending on the time of year cuz Hawaii does not observe daylight savings time. Um we uh sometimes would get primetime cable shows would start at like 2 in the afternoon because mm-hmm. of the time difference. Um and then but network is the same as here. It started at 7 rather than eight. Um, I, uh, I'm i mostly excited that I get to sleep in. I don't have to get up four in the morning anymore. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. To stay, stay on more or less uh, East Coast hours. Well, you know, six is much more civilized. Well, Tara, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, the ATX TV Fest runs from June 7th to 10th this weekend, uh, and they've got their own podcast. They started a podcast called yes. oh, the, TV, the TV Campfire, and this goes to our whole theory that, like, panels at, at events like this are basically podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's basically a podcast on a stage. It's true. So it makes sense for them to kind of repurpose some of that content as podcasts, which is great. Uh, you can check out more info about it at atxfestival.com. Previously.tv is where Tara writes. You can check out her amazing Americans recaps and everything else. Uh, thanks for, for being here. It's Thank been you. a long time coming. So exciting. Thank you so much. Freaks and Geeks, Friday Night Lights, which shows changed your life? With the cast of Felicity here for the ATX TV Festival, we talk about which shows impacted us at that critical life juncture. Sharon Chapman, Statesman Features Editor, welcome to I Love You So Much. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. So the cast of Felicity is reuniting 20 years later at the ATX TV Fest. So Sharon, you are a huge Felicity fan, and we thought this would be a great excuse to talk about coming-of-age shows. So um, I first want to start out with a little bit of defining our terms in what a coming-of-age show is, because, Addie, we don't just mean teen shows. It's not exactly what we mean. It's, I think of it more as, like, life transitions. Mm-hmm. We're, I mean, the shows that I think of when I think of coming-of-age shows are the shows that I learned or that I watched in order to learn how to transition into the next phase of my life. Or even a phase that it was, like, I was a, an 11-year-old watching Frasier and really digging it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When you were coming of age. Okay. Well, let's warm yeah. up a little bit Sharon, by talking you, about yeah. Felicity and why you were such a super fan. Well, I was out of college when it premiered, I think... But I think it helped me process things from college, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I identified so much with Felicity. You know, she was so emotional and sensitive. And all my life, I've been told, oh, you're so sensitive. <laughs> and there's this one episode where ben, she and Ben, you know, the push-pull of them, and they'd gotten together, and then he 
kind of freaked out and couldn't handle their relationship. And she gives him this great speech about how you can't handle it. And I'm okay that I feel things. And I don't want to change who I am, basically. And that's, oh, it's the episode where she cuts her hair. Yeah. So it's very dramatic. And it was very like, yeah. You (laughs) finally see yourself reflected in somebody on TV. Yeah. And sort of like, you don't have to change yourself for a guy and you, or or for a woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just sort of owning yourself and and not feeling bad about it. Felicity, I also admire the fact that she's an awkward heroine too. You know, yes. like she had long awkward silences <laughs> and those were just part of her way she was in the world. <laughs> and she made mistakes. I mean, she really did some dumb things or just, I, I didn't want to say dumb, just emotional, you know, for maybe noble reasons or out of love sometimes, but she's just relatable. Right. She's very relatable. Like all of us, she's not perfect. She okay. makes mistakes in relationships. Well, speaking of young people who aren't perfect, um, let's pivot Addie to one that you mentioned earlier that I think are like, is a shared coming of age show for us. And that is my so-called life. I think of this as like the er coming of age show, like mm-hmm. the platonic ideal of coming thought, of age. I thought you were going to say sex in the city. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. We'll okay, okay. totally, totally get there. Okay. I How- cried when that show was canceled and I was yeah. an adult. Oh, yeah. Again. yeah. I mean, it was just devastating to me. How old were you, Addie, when my so-called life came uh, You out? know, I have to confess, I actually was aware of the show, but I was not a hardcore watch every episode of it. Oh, my God, because I was Angela well, Chase's age watching it in real time, mm. also crushing on mm. Jordan Catalano. Yes. Mm. And, like, what I really enjoyed about that show is it caught both, like, um, the pathos of being a teen with just, like, the, like, it, it, it made you aware that Angela was like, I am being melodramatic right now. You know, <laughs> like it, it was like, uh, it was painful at times. And then also, you know, Rayanne and other characters in the show could be like, look, like you are being stupid about this. Like you've mm-hmm. got to snap out of it, mm-hmm. you know, it's, so. It just seems like it, television changed so much, like in the 80s and 90s, where characters got to be more complex. They got to be flawed. We got to sure. see them have these dynamic changes over the course of an episode or a season and not to say that that didn't happen in earlier television but it was more either you know slapstick comedy or like mash drama you know it was very yeah. like capital D drama instead of sort of a more realistic yeah like compare drama. that to compare my so-called life to full house mm-hmm. with a laugh track oh yeah well exactly. something else about my so-called life is it the adults had a real life in it as well mm-hmm. and they had storylines and they were real complex people mm-hmm. if you recall mm-hmm. I mean it was such a, it was only one season <laughs> but mm-hmm. her parents had things that they went through and there was great you know when Angela's fr- when Rayanne overdoses and you find out that her mom had had a roommate in college who had OD'd mm-hmm. and then her parents were having some marital issues and it was a show where it wasn't like adults versus kids and mm-hmm. the adults were buffoons and yeah, you know, the kids yeah, yeah. were taken seriously as well though for their emotions and I mean that reminds me of like the Gilmore Girls or um, oh, what was I just thinking oh well I mean even like Friday Night Lights these like multi-generational multi these big parenthood um, you know where you've got multi-generations living mm-hmm. their lives interacting and going on for seasons uh, those I think are the most rewarding because like I said I really I don't think of coming of age shows as like the traditional My So Cold Life where it's somebody who is exactly like me I mean I really mm-hmm. enjoy even I was a kid watching 30 something with my parents <laughs> I love oh, I love that show <laughs> they're having a Ensemble. 30 something years I'm... later at the television festival this weekend okay yeah. can we talk about Sex and the City and why I think <laughs> okay. of that okay <laughs> okay make a case make a case for why well, Sex and the City is a coming of age show could be destructive though too oh like, yeah. yeah I mean yeah. looking back on it now for sure but I guess I was just I was a teen getting ready to go into college and I and Carrie Bradshaw was just a strong-willed outgoing you know similar to Felicity where you know she I remember her crying in the bathroom to (laughs) um 
what's her name? The dark-haired girl. Charlotte? Charlotte about like nobody's strong enough to carry me nobody's strong enough to catch me when I fall and you know it's like that's me that's my story so I guess it was it was again being a young person watching adults performing adulthood and I could say the same about friends or the or even the real world so like a reality television um I remember being you know just I didn't know very many college-age kids in my life I was it was a small town and so Mm -hmm. to watch what I thought, I mean, of course, it's a reality depiction of what college is or what, you know, young adulthood is like, or with Sex in the City, like what your 30s is. It's not really very realistic, but it um, it just explored some parts of adulthood that I don't know where I would have seen that. Because it certainly wasn't yeah, in that's I mean, really movies. Good, yeah. like, so, not- Addie, can I tell you that I want to pick up on you what said what you just said about it not being realistic. Yes, of course, Sex and the City is like a creamy Chanel-wrapped fantasy. <laughs> but it. I was watching that around the same time The Bachelor came out. Mm-hmm. And so I had these very divergent models of adulthood, which mm-hmm. was like, find a husband mm-hmm. or like have a career. And like looking back on it now, those are such stark black and white examples. It's sad that I thought it was collapsed down to those two options. Mm-hmm. But I remember all the girls in my college dorm room gathering around watching The Bachelor, which people, <laughs> I still know people who watch it ironically <laughs> now, but loving Sex in the City for this kind of like, alternative mode of being Mm -hmm. and thinking probably not realizing it was a fantasy at the time like oh you can be a writer you can move to New York you can have your friends like you don't you know growing up in Texas it's just a big deal to be like you don't have to immediately get married mm-hmm. well and that's where like we were talking about the L word possibly being a coming of age show where you know I wasn't a lesbian but I also watched these women just perform womanhood in a different way that was yeah. really important for me when I was forming my own identity and sense of self that it's like oh you don't have to fit into a heterosexual or a homosexual box you can be all these different kinds of women and yeah. that felt empowering to me I think with Sex in the City, my friends and I used to gather on Sunday nights and watch it. So it was really powerful for our friendships as well. And, you know, I will say I need to separate my feelings about the movies from the TV show. Oh, yeah, Because <laughs> I do of love course. the TV show. Have you read that piece by Emily Nassbaum called How Sex and the City Lost Its Good Name? Yes. So she she gets it just what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Sunday nights with your girlfriends. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. And, you know, we would talk about it. We would watch the show and we had rules about you know not a lot talking during the show it was only <laughs> half an hour but we would talk for hours afterwards about the show and our lives and just everything going on and the same thing with Buffy the Vampire Slayer in a different way I had just moved to Kansas City I loved that show I was starting in a new job everybody I worked with watched that show and so on Tuesday nights we all watched it individually and on Wednesdays good hour talking about Buffy. You downloaded. Yeah, yeah. And it was very bonding and just just a really wonderful experience. And we were all different ages and different sexes, different colors, everything. And it was just this great coming together. Okay, so two things about that, Sharon. A, it just hit me today walking into the States in that you are a CW girl. You <laughs> yes, really are. I Buffy, am. <laughs> Veronica Mars, oh, Felicity. God, yes. Like, you were there for it. Back Vampire in Diaries. The WB yes. days. Mm-hmm. You were there for it. Dawson's Creek. Okay, I watched them all. Second, second point on that. I'm wondering if there's a secondary definition for coming of age shows, and that is do they have to have communities that form around them? Because mm-hmm. I feel like, on the one hand, there's the life transition. Um, you know, primary definition that we've staked out. But then also I feel like these like communities around them, like they're hitting people in a place where 
their feelings need to be processed with others. Ooh, Ooh I like that. Because the same thing with Friday Night Lights. We would talk for hours. Oh, yeah. And that's, I mean, we're always so desperate to connect with other people who've seen that show. So when you mm-hmm. meet somebody and you identify that you both are Buffy fans, yes, it becomes an instant point of connection and you can sort of dig in deep. One show that came to mind, though, that is totally out there that I feel like actually because of the time when I watched it was coming of age for me was actually a, a, a series called The Up Series. And it's where, oh, starting yeah. in 1964, yep. this director... Uh, interviews oh, yeah. these like, right. seven kids seven up every and seven. 14 yeah, up. And so yeah. now they're in their 50s, maybe even in their 60s. And um, I had just had Julian and I was at home and Netflix, I was getting the discs via Netflix in my mailbox. It was a very time and place. But it just having a kid and having this like sense of, wow, like time is going to pass in a way that I'm not going to be able to understand. Mm-hmm. Watching that show helped me grapple with that and helped me wow. think and just explore different parts of aging and generations that I don't know that I would have in any other way, which, which wasn't a TV show, but I don't know. I'm always looking for people who've seen that series because it affected me so much. It's And it's yeah. a docu, it's a British docu-series. Mm-hmm. No? Yeah, and um, I think it's gone through uh, like five or six different iterations. The I think they got all the way to, to at least 49. There are 54 of I think was the last yeah, one. Okay. So the next one will be coming. I, I need to look and see when it will be. Wow. But, but I mean, what they you, follow the same people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And must, that in particular must be so wild to binge. Oh, yeah. Because it was like you were fast forwarding through decades over weeks. Yeah. And so that's where that kind of whiplash came in. But it also just gave you such an appreciation of every day, you know, that you have and, mm-hmm. and, and just how much things change. It's like every day you wake up and you're a different person. Yeah. You know what coming of age show I haven't discovered yet? And I know it's out there. Like you two can probably tell me what this show is, but I'm looking for it is I'm trying to find a coming of age show about becoming a parent. Mm-hmm. Like... Um, especially when you're a parent who like really like loves what they do for a living and like loves their hobbies and stuff like how that kind of an individual tr- like then eases into the life of being a parent. It's like I'm trying mm, to figure and not just like I feel like the kind of shows are out there like the big joke is like well you don't have sex anymore or something like that mm-hmm. or I, d- I feel like that's the joke of it rather than this like kind of deeper question about identity mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so anyway listeners mm-hmm. if you know it's this coming of age show about being a parent uh, talk to me I mean ha- have you seen Parenthood? Yeah Parenthood. Oh yeah, yeah. actually my friend Jason Silverberg who P.S. Um, former uh, Statesman Shots uh, intro music provider um, had a song appear on Parenthood. Oh, so great. yeah, that one. Yeah, you're right. Okay, that one's that one's pretty good. But like, those are older kids. Yeah, that's probably yeah. true. Uh, you need like uh, baby. I know. I guess Full House is probably not a good yeah. invitation. <laughs> oh my God, as I said in the Tara Ariano statement, I do not know how that show got a reboot. No one was asking for it. <laughs> I hope it goes uh, away. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope you have fun at the TV festival this weekend, Sharon. Thanks. I'm really excited. I will be at Felicity and the Americans. For awesome. Sure. Tweet away, my friend. <laughs> I will. And listeners, if you have your favorite coming of age shows, talk to us. We'd love to share them Please on the next offer episode. recommendations. We would love to hear them. True Passion is a World Cup soccer game, but the U.S. team isn't going, so who are you rooting for? And where do you find your fellow fans? 
As MLS soccer creeps ever slowly to Austin, we talk to our friend, Phil West, who is a soccer authority, and here to point you in the right direction. So, Phil, welcome to I Love You So Much. Hey, glad to to be here. So, we got World Cup coming up, and Tali and I are not soccer experts by any stretch. Not so much. (laughs) But we do know it's in Russia this year. Which which is is, a little weird. It's interesting. It's really strange. Yeah, they got it actually a few years before, and curiously, the day before the World Cup this year, the U.S. finds out if their joint bid with Canada and Mexico will go through or whether it will be in Morocco. So it it's would be some like... deep state stuff going on, <laughs> is what we're all saying here. So how can we how can we lose? We're like the North American powerhouse with like Canada and Mexico, U.S. <laughs> like who, who are we up against? Uh, we're up against Morocco. That's a compelling place to watch soccer. It's compelling, so. and it's in the time zone where a lot of the voters are, and every country gets gets a vote this year. And mm. um, maybe not the best ambassador for the U.S. this year. Uh, <laughs> you know, kind of the the occupant of the White House. Yeah. So I mean, that's... We, we have great burgers. We do. Okay, and so, tacos. So on that note, okay, Phil, here is my question. Yeah. Where do people watch the World Cup in Austin? Because whenever I'm I'm around soccer fans, I feel like I just get dragged to some person's house, and mm-hmm. it's like people are screaming, and I don't know what's going on. But you watch it out in the world, right? <laughs> There's a few soccer bars. Bars in Austin, bars that are kind of specifically catering to soccer fans. Um, and a lot of this is dictated by, um, so the English Premier League, they have games basically August through May. Um, and over in England, you know, they're at normal times. They're at, you know, 1230, 3 o'clock, whatever. But here that translates into six hours earlier. So, so different people, bars like take up different like yeah. viewing roles. Yeah. And they open up their doors at like 630 in the morning and Got have people come out. Like actually, yeah, the day after my wedding, um, I I dragged my then new wife out to a soccer bar in New Orleans uh, to watch a 6.30 screening of a game. Oh, congratulations, Mrs. West. How did did that go over? (laughs) It went over surprisingly well, but we we actually, we invited a lot of the wedding party and strangely, they did not show up. Okay, so (laughs) but But so here, so um, Haymaker is is kind of a main place. I mean, also when the the U.S. plays, that's typically the place where people go. Um, And that's, that's over on Manor. Um, so, yeah, so a few of the teams will have their viewing parties there. Uh, there's the Tavern, uh, which is over in 12th and Lamar, uh, which is where Arsenal fans watch. Um, there's Mr. Tramps, uh, which I was like oh, to say. Oh, up north? Mr. Tramps. Yeah, yeah which is right. where uh, Spurs fans hang out. So, cool. yeah, so there's a few different places. And then, yeah, Fado. Sounds like your people, Omar. Mr. Tramps. Your Spurs fans. <laughs> what are you trying to say? You know? <laughs> uh, so, and I also know that there's some, there's sometimes like some impromptu like outdoor screenings. I think there was some stuff like near the Long Center last time. I mm-hmm. remember seeing crowds of people gather around a giant screen in the hot sun. And I was like, that doesn't look like fun, but they look like they're having fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and they have, yeah, they've had those all over. I mean, again, the big question kind of this year since the U.S. isn't in it, if there's going to be as much enthusiasm mm. uh, for it. But yeah, like last year, I went around the country. I went to a uh, different city every day. I kind of had a book in mind as a premise for doing this t- kind of crazy 10,000 miles in my Honda Insight uh, tour um, and ended up, yeah, so I, I went to one of those similar watch parties um, when the U.S. played Portugal in Chicago and Grant Park where basically it was like uh, 20,000 people, uh, 
in a parking lot. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Watching a game on a big screen. So yeah, so they will have some some watch parties like that sometimes. What what did happen to the US? Why didn't they get to the World Cup? It's a long complicated story uh which my which my book covers in part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've a new book out uh on the US's World Cup fortunes. Uh but essentially it's really competitive in our region now. So the world is split up into different regions and certain numbers of teams qualify from that and the US yeah failed to qualify for the first time since the Reagan era basically mm-hmm. so since since the 80s so what are the top countries this year that we think might might pick it all uh let's see well um Germany won it 4 years ago and they're they're a favorite to win it again um they're really talented um really solid team uh I like France this year um, France is also similarly talented, uh, but a lot of fun. Um, and uh, Brazil, of course, which was the host team four years ago. People thought that they would win it then. Um, they flopped kind of spectacularly in the semifinals and had done really well up till that. Um, Argentina is kind of a sentimental favorite in a way because Lionel Messi has done a lot of great things in soccer. I mean, again, a name that y'all might recognize, even though you might not be, you know, as soccer savvy as mm-hmm. as you're letting on, maybe. Um, you overestimate me, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so he plays for Argentina, obviously, and this is kind of maybe his um, last best Swan chance to, to win. Yeah, exactly. Okay, right. so blanket question mm-hmm. about Austinites and soccer. So Austin is tr- it may get its own professional soccer team right. here shortly. Um, the like soccer for people like Omar and I is this interesting parallel universe where we just don't have a pulse on how enthusiastic mm-hmm. soccer fans are. And then I talk to someone like you, and oh my god, it's this huge deal, this like anchoring concept in their life. So, how big a deal do you think soccer is in Austin? Like, is it in our DNA here, or is it still kind of niche? I think to a certain degree, it's niche. I mean, I I don't think that there are. You know, everybody in the city is not necessarily clamoring for soccer, but there's definitely a lot of pockets of soccer support. I mean, it is one of the um, kind of the the most watched um, in terms of, of for the World Cup viewing. Um, this is one of the cities like per capita that that views it best. Right. So, um yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying. Yeah. So. So what I'm trying to say is, is it's we've got a lot of bars. So yeah, we have. I mean, we have a lot of bars, a lot of viewing parties, but definitely. I mean, there's there's fans of of the English teams. There's definitely fans of MLS more and more. Uh, there's a bunch of fans of of the Mexican teams too. Like okay. you'll have Mexican teams come and play exhibition matches here close by, and you'll get. You know, fifteen, twenty thousand people. If it's in an Austin stadium, or they'll trek out to San Antonio or Houston or Dallas. You know, for some of those bigger ones as well. So yeah, I mean, I do think that there's a lot of support here, but it is kind of bubbling under. I mean, I think that that will be really interesting to see that when you know, if and when we do get the MLS team that would be moving from Columbus here, uh, what kind of support you would see. I mean, I do think that people would come out of the woodwork and and support it. Cool. Well, we will be tuning into the World Cup, and I'd be curious on social media to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, Phil, where can people find your book? Um, I am, let's see, so probably, I mean, obviously Amazon, um, book people I imagine will stock it. I think Malvern will stock it. I think Malvern, um, and I've worked something out for my book release party, which is going to be, uh, June 9th at Haymaker, um, oh. which I had mentioned, uh, which is, yeah, also, um, that's the U.S. The U.S. will be playing France that day. So they are not in the World Cup, but they have a couple of, 
games where they're preparing other teams for the World Cup. And, uh, and, and, like, and so hey, that's, guys, <laughs> we're here. Let's play some soccer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a consolation match type thing. So, yeah, so they will be playing France, which I'm excited about because I love the U.S. team and I love the France team, and it'll be fun to see them. Fantastic. Well, Phil, thank you for joining us, and I and, uh, hope you enjoy it this year. Yeah, thanks. You too. The Paramount and Stateside Theaters are hosting their annual summer movie series, which is a perfect excuse to sit in the dark and watch Casablanca again. Statesman film critic Joe chats with Addy about which movies caught his eye on the schedule this year and why it's so fun to watch them in an old school setting. Okay, Joe, so the Paramount Summer Series is back. Tell us what you can expect if you were to go see a movie at the Paramount or the Stateside this summer. Yeah, the Paramount Summer Film Series is one of the nicest things about living in Austin in the summer. About 110 movies are screening as part of the series. Old classics, new classics, definitely stuff that you could rent you know, yourself at home, but there's nothing quite like seeing a classic film uh, you know, the way God intended on an enormous screen. In a big old theater with air conditioning. A big old theater with air conditioning. You know, popcorn, candy, wine, booze. Um, you know, the Paramount uh, has a full array of snacks, both for children and adults. So it's a little different than maybe your classical, like, Cineplex experience. But, yeah. But it's family friendly. And totally. most of these screenings are in the evenings and on the weekends, too? Yes. Uh, evenings and um, so a fewer during the day, but most are, m- most are in the evenings. And um, I picked out about 30 uh, for a piece for the Statesman, just highlights that I thought were, were interesting. A lot of them, and they're, they're also a bargain. It's, uh, they're often double features, mm-hmm. which uh, can eat up a lot of time. Some of these <laughs> movies are not short that are, uh, you know, some of the double features are, are you know, old uh, 78, 80, 90-minute pictures from the 40s and 50s. And some of them are much longer films that they've sort of Three-hour like epics. Yeah, yeah, these are... But, you know, with t- tickets are 12 bucks, which is um, no more expensive than your average multiplex. And, uh, yeah, you're getting a ton of entertainment. And these aren't all old, old, old movies, but you would all, you would consider them classics. Yes. Modern classics, too. Yeah, and, and some that are, you know, kind of junky but cool, like mm-hmm. The Hunger... Uh, the Hunger is part of a three-day David Bowie tribute, and you know they're doing The Man That Fell to Earth, and they're doing Labyrinth, and then they're doing The Hunger, the extremely adult, uh, Tony Scott's extremely <laughs> adult vampire movie, um, which has one of the greatest opening sequences of all time um, with uh, Bauhaus and David Bowie and, and Anne Magnuson as, as the victim. Uh, you know, The Hungers are really fun, kind of junky movie. Uh, that will look amazing at the Paramount. But at the same time, you know, they're showing Metropolis and, you know, the 148-minute version of Metropolis. I've seen Metropolis maybe 10 times. I've never seen it in a theater, which is weird to think about now that I think about it for such a nerdy... Well, I mean, I think for all the film nerds out there, if you didn't get a chance to to watch some of these movies in, you know, like Double Indemnity is screening and All About Eve and some of these, I mean, Brazil and Do the Right Thing... These are real classics that are just not the same when you're sitting on your couch watching them at home. No, it's a blast. It's, you know, there are repertory houses used to exist all across the United States in great numbers. And then with the home video revolution, they just started to fall away. And now with streaming, 
the local video store is starting to fall away, which means that your film selection is limited to whatever is streaming. Stre- whatever yeah. is streaming. And, um, you know, there aren't a lot of old movies on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of, there are other services that have sprung up to fill that gap. But it's still, you know, you're still you're still at home. You're not at you're not at a movie theater. And you know, seeing something like, you know, something like hilarious as Logan's Run on a big screen, uh, I think is is absolutely worth it. Because that experience of watching it with other people, and I oh, think yeah. that uh, that's that is something that I think I don't want to say that we're starting to lose, but you certainly have to go out of your way to really uh, put yourself in the experience of. I mean, I just watched Logan's Run last year at home, and it, it was fun and fine, but you know to be in the audience and to hear them laughing at the certain parts and oh yeah you know, gasping and yeah it's especially hard to find with older films with repertory films i mean you know you can movie theaters are doing fine business wise but uh older rep stuff is much harder to track down for a uh, for, with an audience now i think it's uh, we have an unusually good repertory culture in austin between the paramount austin film society and the draft house you can see a ton of stuff uh, you know it's i i've long said that this is you know one of the best cities in the united states to be a film nerd uh that isn't you know new york or la and it's uh the paramount film series is a huge part of that so afs you said sometimes they'll have like discussions or panels after the movies this isn't that kind of thing no this not is really just the screening not usually it's usually just the screening uh so, I, now and then they will have discussions but it's not um, it's not, you know, they might have somebody introducing the film briefly, but it's not a, uh, you know, let's have a nerdy film talk. I'm it's, sure you could find some nerds afterwards. You to are talk it's about. very yeah. easy to find. And it sounds like tickets, are, you know, you can buy them online or you can buy them at the box office yep. beforehand. And the, the theaters are so large, you probably don't have to worry about them selling out. Very unlikely. And that's kind of a difference from perhaps at the draft house yes. or some of the other screenings. Uh, yeah, no, these are, uh, this is, these are, these are pretty big rooms, so you don't have to worry too much about stuff selling out. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Joe. Thank you. Now we come to the moment in our show where we have a toast. This is where we go around the table talking about some things we think you, our listeners, should check out. So, Omar, sir, how about you get us started? Hey, I. so I... Uh have not been doing a lot of video game stuff lately. I've, I've been playing one video game for like the last year and that's Overwatch and that's all I've been playing. <laughs> so I've fallen way behind on my video game coverage. But one thing that Nintendo came out with recently that, that I'm really excited about and that I've been starting with with my kids is called Nintendo Labo. And what this is, is it's for the N- Nintendo Switch, which is their, their you know kind of port, semi-portable console. Uh, it's cardboard. It's basically a giant box of cardboard panels that you cut out and you make into shapes, and they work with the controllers and with the screen of the Nintendo Switch. So this Whoa. sounds really incredibly like weird and lame, but once you start doing it, uh, it's really neat. You can make a fishing rod out of cardboard and string. That cardboard work, is fun. That works with the controller as <laughs> as the mechanism that that you know sees what you're doing. Uh, oh, you that's how it. That's it the integration. Sees it. A okay. piano, a playhouse. A you know it, it the that's kind of cool. It really is, and the Nintendo Labo set the main set is like sixty dollars, and it, but it comes with like five or six different things that you make. And the thing that's that's neat about it, apart from just that it works, that this cardboard contraption stuff actually works with the screen and works works with the controllers, is that you are actually with your kids making the stuff together. Yeah, and this on screen 
directions are fantastic. They're all an, it's all animated. You can mm-hmm. rotate the things around so you see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's little jokes along the way, you know, that it, that it makes it really cute. And in that sort of n- Nintendo magical way of like making something engaging that normally would not be that engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my kids are completely enchanted by it. They're taking turns like, okay, I'm going to do this part and then it's going to be your turn and you're going to do this part and then it all kind of comes together. Uh, they released two of these. They released one that's sort of a variety set of these different things like the fishing rod and the motorcycle wheel and all that. And then there's an one that's just one big robot suit, basically. It is like a robot costume that you put on with a visor cool. and like arms that, that with strings that you punch and stuff wow. and you see it on screen, what, what it's doing. It's it's as close to magic as I've seen from a video game. Like it's ridiculous that this stuff works as well as it does, that the cardboard is as sturdy as it is, that the directions are as easy to follow. Like it's like they did it. They knocked it out of the park. So it's the cardboard. Does it have sensors in it or something special that the, helps it work with the, the cardboard works with the controllers, which themselves have sensors and cameras and stuff on them. You can just build any old cardboard thing. You, well, like with the fishing rod, it actually works like an actual fishing rod, and there's a fishing game that you play it with. Oh, so like, oh, so like wow. you're interacting with stuff on. You're not just going off with the cardboard by itself. Like you're actually still playing a game, a video game. That's cool. But you're interacting with these cardboard objects that work with the video game. What if you question? What if you mess it up? Is the game like? Arr. It's really forgiving with the and with the construction of the cardboard. The cardboard is very sturdy. It tells you exactly like fold it here and then fold it there and then turn it's it this way. It's kind of foolproof. It's okay. perforated. Yeah. It's all and it's very sturdy. And I. I I believe there's a way to like print out your own cardboard like like print a PDF that you would overlay over like a piece of cardboard if, if you lose out. a piece or wow. you mess up a piece you can get your own cardboard and recreate that piece wow. and, and you're good to go. This they wow. thought of, they thought of everything. This is a step up from my kids taking every Amazon box I've ever received and building box forts and stuff out of it. But <laughs> to have it integrated with a video game that's brilliant. But you forget that like kids love playing with cardboard. They love, they it. love folding cardboard mm-hmm. and tearing out cardboard and then like Cutting combine the that. windows out of cardboard. Yeah, and so you're true. playing a video game but you feel like you're actually building something tactile with your hands and it, it, it gives adds that whole other dimension to it. So yeah, if you want to spend like three, four hours with your kid building something like and you have a Nintendo Switch, get a Labo. It's fantastic. Awesome. Great recommendation. Oh, Tali, what are you into these days? Okay, so I have been in birthday party land which means I am bereft of cultural suggestions <laughs> but I do have a cool gift idea so Ross turned 40 this year and I wanted to go all out on a big gift and in my family we really enjoy experience gifts rather than um, like stuff gifts so uh, for six or seven years he's wanted to do this thing called California Brazil camp and this is where you go camp out in the redwoods for a week and wake up in the morning and learn drum stuff from samba masters. So if you're a percussionist, it is like the dreamiest thing ever. But every year he's wanted to go and he can't because we couldn't afford it. Meanwhile, all his Austin Samba friends went and had a big time and he felt left out. So this year I reached out to a bunch of friends and family and said, hey, can we all go in together to buy him tuition to California Brazil camp? So that's what we did and I presented it to him at his birthday party on Saturday with all of our names on it and he was really touched and um, yeah so it's such a great idea to get your friends engaged in something and to give them I mean I never know what to give people and to give them an experience but nobody can afford you know a couple grand um, yeah and you could just get Venmo you know People can send you oh, money it was so easy yeah people Venmoed me people PayPal'd me this, it is, was- like, this is like a GoFundMe but but you don't even know that it's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I'll admit, I felt a little funny, like, reaching out to people, you know, for their money. And I made a little joke about it, like, 
hey, please, on your Venmo receipt, like, put Ross's birthday present so I don't accidentally transfer and then, like, go to Target or something and spend it on myself. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I think, like, this is... This is something that I personally like to do when it comes to big gifts. It's like I'll go and gather a bunch of people and get something really cool. Like the crowdfunded birthday gift. Yeah. Yeah. So it's anyway. It's a great gift idea. I love it. Group. Yeah. Crowdfund your birthday presents. Uh, Addie. Okay. So it's this time of year, which means I'm drinking Cali Mochos. And so Cali Mocho is my favorite su- uh, summer drink. It is red wine and Coca-Cola on ice. Oh, yeah. Ross had this with in lemon, Spain. With lemon juice. And I mean, <laughs> it I, sounds revolting. It sounds revolting, but it really is like a wine cooler. It's either boozy Coke or Cokey wine. It's a little <laughs> bit of a combination of those. You have to have the ice, you have to have the lemon. Altogether, it's just this really refreshing, kind of booze light drink. Um, but in Spain, I would even venture to say that it's maybe even more popular than sangria. I mean, sangria is something that tourists know and restaurants you enjoy, but to me, I don't like chewing on the fruit that's been soaking in the wine. It's too tanniny, and I don't know. I just don't really like chewing on soaking fruit. But uh, calimochos, on the other hand, super easy to make. You can use leftover wine. Any kind of wine works. Uh, the better quality of the Coke, the better. If you want to use Diet Coke, you can. And uh, yeah, it's my most refreshing drink. So try it out. It's about half half and half with at least a squeeze of lime juice or lemon juice. You can even like rim it with lemon juice if you want. Okay, so for my dream of having an I Love You So Much happy hour, maybe we can make Cali Mochos a signature drink. Oh, I would of- make a whole <laughs> bucket full. For okay, cool. Awesome. Cali Mochos. Cali Mochos. Okay, uh, thanks guys for your dose. Thanks. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your frozen margaritas. Until next week, we'll see you sweating it out at Blues on the Green.